Hello, fellow fishermen. The ASGA team is hitting the road. That's right. We are kicking off the first ASGA road show. The tour is going to feature a series of stops that include private showings of amazing striped bass and conservation films, discussions that foster learning and community unification, good drinks, and incredible raffles from the best conservation-minded businesses in the industry. We hope you're ready for a good time in Portland, Maine. That's where the first stop's going to be Wednesday, February 2nd at 6.30 p.m. To RSVP, head to the link in any of our social bios or type in linktree slash ASGA. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash ASGA. Again, that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash ASGA. Type that into your mobile browser. You'll find that link in our description of the podcast as well. We'll keep you in the loop on social media as well as audio updates in the upcoming weeks as each of our tour stops approaches. Rest assured, all local businesses and health regulations are followed at each event. We're looking forward to seeing you out on the road. Tight lines, and we'll see you soon. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of the Guidepost. We are here to talk about striped bass, my number one partner in crime, the two most uh, negative, dour, old <laughs> bastards that you will ever meet. Tony Friedrich and Captain John McMurray. How are you doing today, bud? Good, man. Good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, wouldn't you're you are you are my favorite counterpart in this because uh, you know Willie isn't here, so there's no one to contain us. So this should be a this oh, should be a, a high octane podcast. So you know, John, you were you were at the table. Um, obviously, we were all listening and feverishly taking notes. Stripe bass hearing was a couple of days ago. This Amendment 7 process has been painful. It's like pushing a boulder uphill, but it was approved. And uh, as negative and genuinely pissed off and, and failures of anger management courses across the globe, you and I both kind of walked out and we felt almost slightly positive, which is almost impossible. So um, would you agree with that? I mean... What did you walk uh, yeah. away from the meeting feeling? Yeah, I, I think I kind of felt the same way. And it's important to note here that really we're just putting a document out to the public and it's going to be up to the public to uh, to comment on on this and to, to try and, and sway managers uh, more than they already have been swayed into, into believing we need more protections, not less. Um, I, I think it went about as well as it could. Uh, you know, when you look back two years ago when this was initiated, it it looked pretty damn bad, um, particularly the, the parts about uh, uh, changing the uh, the biomass reference points. Um, and, and here we are now where we're pretty much everything uh, that we were concerned about, uh, you know, with the exception of some of the management triggers was uh, was taken out of the document. And, uh, you know, we didn't see anything uh, bad put put in at this point. And, and we did manage to remove one of the particularly egregious options uh, in the management triggers. Um, and you that, know, was, it, that was the that was the three third first tier third option to make it a three year average for overfishing instead of overfishing for one year. And I guess the argument for that was to smooth out the data uh, that argument for it, but the argument against it, and you brought this question up and we were all screaming and cheering was, has that ever even happened in the whole history of stripe pass management? And what's the point of a trigger if it's never happened, right? Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that question that I asked at the end, you know, have there been any actions that weren't responses to, to management triggers being tripped? And uh, they, they didn't answer, you know, even though I think it was pretty clear that we all knew the answer. Uh, and it's that they haven't. They they don't take proactive management, and uh, and 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 that's just the way they operate. Uh, one of the other things about that particular trigger option is that, from a practical standpoint, it wasn't it wasn't really 
doable because you need three years of data under the most recent management action, uh, which I suppose could happen. But, you know, usually we have stock assessments or stock assessment updates every two years. And there's a management action as a result of those updates. So you have two years of, of data. You don't have the three required to, to, to trip that trigger. And so you could theoretically have two years of overfishing occurring uh, and have a stock that's overfished for two years. But because you don't have those three years of data, it gives the board an out to not take action. And I, I think it's pretty clear at this point they wouldn't take action unless unless they had to. So I'm glad we got rid of that. And, you know, thanks to Megan for making that motion. It seemed like it wasn't going to pass, didn't it? When when folks like. Oh, Armstrong yeah, we were talking and, about we were texting on the phone and we we're like, this thing's going to tank. Yeah, and it certainly seemed like it, it passed. Right, like what? Right. Well, so so I, I, there's something interesting, and I'm going to make an observation here that applies not just to to this management trigger option, but to the entire process. Is that uh, managers seem to be uh, a they seem to be pretty concerned about the state of striped bass now. It's kind of moved from that uh, green light uh, management discussion to uh, to man, we we really need to do something, and we need to do it quickly because uh, you know given the the young of the year indices and the current overfishing and overfish stock things things get very bad very quickly uh and and b i think that they're also quite a bit more responsive to the public than they have been and i i think that's the result of the really big outpouring we got uh for the scoping document when they, when they first put out the issues and uh, you know, the public was really aggressively loud and clear that we didn't want to kill more fish. We wanted to rebuild the stock. We wanted to see uh, abundance levels back the way they were prior to 2012. And so I think, uh, you know, I wouldn't say they're, they're scared of the public. <laughs> Maybe they are to some extent, but they're, they're certainly responsible or, or responsive to, to public sentiment at this point. Yeah. And uh, John, that's a huge point because, you know, I think, you and I in our careers have heard over and over again, what difference does it make if we say anything, they don't listen to us anyway. And if you look at the PID and what was in that and what we're dealing with now and all the bad stuff that we were able to flush out of that, I mean, in this one case, people are making a difference and that's, it's undeniable, right? And you could, you could say it's COVID we're more technology savvy, you know, you can blame it on, they, they can, they can, pen it on whatever they want to try to pen it on. But the reality is striped bass are a primary recreational fishery. Striped bass anglers primarily choose to release their fish. Uh, it's a very special fishery. It's an iconic fish. And people care about it. And and they're up, they're up in arms because, you know, I wanted to bring this up with you. You're in a, we always hear, you know, um, from certain segments of, you know, different stakeholder groups that like, what are you guys? You guys are shitty fishermen. I could walk across striped bass. They're eating all the crabs. You know, they're eating all the, oh, there's so many striped bass. We got to get rid of them. And you're in an interesting place because before tuna season kicks in for you, you're fishing a lot in that Raritan fishery and you are seeing a good number of big fish, but it's a perfect example of, you know, uh, and, and, an isolated good fishery because if you talk to like the six-pack guys who troll here who troll i mean they can go days without a bite you know during during the trophy season and it's been it's been flat out lousy uh and these yeah. these characters are trolling 20 30 rods with you know tandem rigs it's it's almost like you know they're just it's it's incredibly efficient way to fish for stripers so up by up in your neck of the woods you guys are seeing a pulse of big fish good fishing and that's kind of like that localized abundance but i mean suffice it to say if you hadn't changed your business model and you were still doing what you did 20 years ago and focusing on stripers you'd be you'd be up shit's creek because it doesn't last for long right yeah uh, and i think everything you said is correct. Um, you know, I, we have a pretty substantial local aggregation that starts early. Uh, it's usually over by mid-May. Last year was anomalous. We kind of had them almost through mid-June. Um, but it is almost a certainty that those are pre-spawn and, and 
to some extent, maybe even post-spawn Hudson River fish. And when you look at the the juvenile abundance indices from the Chesapeake, and then you look at them from the Hudson, uh, clearly the Hudson stock is doing better. We don't have all those, uh, you know, average to well below average uh, young of the year indices like the Chesapeake Bay does as of late, particularly the last three years in the Chesapeake was was terrible. And, uh, you know, and I, I think we're, we're fishing on those 2007s, those Hudson 2007s for the most part. That's where all those big fish are coming from. And that was an extraordinary year class in the Hudson. Uh, and, and I do think that uh, folks tend to look at that good fishing and extrapolate it across the coast. And, and if you don't have that big network of fishermen like guys like you and I do, uh, then, then you do tend to think the fishing is okay. Uh, when, when clearly to most people it is not. And, uh, you know, you talk to any surf caster around, uh, or, or anybody that fishes more than that one little piece of, uh, piece of, of coast. And they'll tell you that it's a, uh, it's a shadow of what it has been and what it should be. Um, but I, I do think that that the Hudson stock is doing better, uh, whereas the Chesapeake stock is not. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're not seeing those big aggregations down in the Chesapeake Bay area like we used to. They're they're kind of very localized and they're all up off of the Hudson. Yeah, and you know, you can everyone can point fingers at the whys. Um, you know, why isn't the Chesapeake seeing you know the the same resiliency of the Hudson. And, you know, frankly, what I would like to say is that you have a lot of stuff going on in the Chesapeake that doesn't go on um, in in other areas. You know, we we pound our fish, frankly, flat. Um, our commercial fishery in the Chesapeake is more, you know, harvests more pounds of fish than the entire coastal commercial fishery. They're generally smaller fish. You know, um, in in Maryland, for example, they're not allowed to keep fish over 36 inches, the commercial fishermen. And then you have, you know, the D.C. Washington Metroplex with 10 million people exerting that effort on these fish. And and what no one talks about is, John, you know, when I moved here a quarter of a century ago, uh, we would go out and catch seven or eight different species. We would catch bluefish, Spanish mackerel, speckled trout, red drum, um, flounder, white perch, spot, croaker, stripers. So like an, an average day, you know, fishing on the Chesapeake, we, you know, may only be like two or three hours in the morning in the summertime. And then we go, you know, the funny thing is I just rattled off all that shit and I didn't even mention weak fish. We used to catch the shit out of weak fish miles. I mean, drift for miles and catch them on every drop. There ain't nothing left. We don't have any flounder anymore. We don't even know what a croaker is. We don't, um, you know, there's spot for bottom fishing. There's still white perch. There's no weak fish. The speckled trout are generally a little bit south of us. The redfish are always, you know, one year's good, next year's bad. That's totally related on their spawn, except for like the giant bulls and they come in. Um, and, you know, our effort, our effort has zeroed in, you know, with the decline of all the other species, our effort has just been unreal on, on the striped bass. And with that 2011 year class that came in, they were everywhere and a lot of people were going fishing. And so it's not like, you know, the, Noah is doing, um, Noah has what's called now the GIT, the goal implementation team. And everyone wants to be like, it's climate change, it's climate change. And there's not a shred of science to prove that. The, I was on a goal implementation team call a few months ago, and they are just starting the process of trying to understand what the, what the holding capacity and the impacts of climate change on the Chesapeake Bay. And they are 10 years away from any findings so, you know, it's just a sorry excuse that is not accurate. Um, we, our effort has zeroed in on stripers and we are reaping what we sowed. And there has to be some, some pretty hardcore regulations to bring that population back in the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, you and I say it all the time. What can you control? F, fishing mortality. That's what we can control. And that's what we have to go after. So I don't know what you think about that, but I'm always, you so, know. Yeah. So a few things 
that set the Hudson aside uh, or makes it make makes that watershed different than the Chesapeake. One is we don't have a commercial fishery in the Hudson. Um, that's not a conservation uh, uh, decision. It's because of PCB levels from um, General Electric plant that used to be up there. Um, so it is illegal to commercially fish for striped bass north of the GW. Well, actually, farther than that, almost uh, all the way down in New York Harbor to uh, Atlantic Beach. It's illegal to uh, commercially fish for stripers in that area. Um, furthermore, we don't have that big catch and kill charter fleet that you guys have in the Chesapeake Bay. It just doesn't exist up here for for reasons that I'm not quite sure of. Um, and and all, all the things you said about you know the Chesapeake possibly producing less fish uh, than it has historically been able to, I I really don't believe that. I think it's capable of having these big young of the year events. Um, and, and granted, we haven't had a whole lot of cold winters. Um, it looks like we're having one this year. So uh, maybe we will see a good spawn come out of the Chesapeake, but it's almost, you know, it's almost, you, you look at the 2011s in particular, and, and that really does seem beyond a doubt that, you know, we knocked the crap out of those fish before they could get out of the bay. Um, so I think, I think a lot of it has to do with, with fishing levels in the Bay, but, you know, clearly Maryland is looking to liberalize regulations, not constrain that fishery. And that's a little bit of a bummer considering, you know, that, that, uh, estuary produces 68 to 80% of the coastal stock. And when you want to look at, at the Hudson as, as a little piece of good news along the coast, well, you know, they're producing maybe 20% of the coastal stock, not 60 to 80. So for sure, we'd rather see the Chesapeake uh, being the, the big producer area, not the Hudson. Or, you know, if the Hudson ends up being uh, the big contributor of the coastal stock, I think we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, um, I mean, but I don't, John, think, if you look I don't at it, think it's climate change related. I really the, don't. Hey, listen, in the last 11 years, we've had the fourth and the eighth best spawns on record. Yeah, the 2011 and the 2015. So mm -hmm. somebody explain that to me. The I'll tell you the one we're supposed to be like Rain Man, me and you, with facts and figures. And I think I think we're both on the decline, um, which is saying a lot in our mental states. You know, we're forgetting more shit. Um, but I know that there's some breaking point. You know, everyone says there's a there's a poor. Uh, stock recruitment relationship with with striped bass and that means you know these are broadcast spawners they're not nest builders right so there doesn't necessarily need to be a lot of them to have a good spawn but there is a tipping point where that when that ssb falls so low it does start to affect the spawn i can't remember it off the top of my head but you know i gotta believe that this this stock assessment I wonder, yes, the public made a difference, but I wonder if some of the commissioners, the PhD guys, you know, the the fisheries directors, maybe they're talking to some of the stock assessment people and the writings on the wall. And we're going to get some real freaking bad news come October. And maybe they're trying to smooth that out. You know, um, to, that's I got to wonder that. Because you're right, man, like the, the, the personalities have changed a little bit. Uh, and I wonder if they're getting some preliminary news that this this update to the stock assessment in October is going to be a flaming bag of dog shit. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know, man, your, your guess is as good as mine. But with all this poor recruitment effort, you know, skyrocketing with COVID, it man it doesn't paint a pretty picture i don't know what you think about that so uh you touched a couple of things uh on a couple of things here uh, the first uh you know we are having good uh recruitment in the chesapeake bay it's not happening as frequent as it used to be but we are having like some ridiculously good uh, uh young of the year indices and and you mentioned we both mentioned 2011s more than once I think if those continue to happen, even if they're spread out every few years and we allow those fish to recruit into the coastal stock, by the way, Willie hates it when I, 
I use recruit in two different ways like that. <laughs> you know, you have fish that, that are, he does, are he does that day. plural thing of data. Like he's like, yeah, the data yeah. are, uh-huh. and I'm like, stop <laughs> doing that, dude. So like, whatever, if it pisses him off, say it like 10 times. Okay. All right. He's, so, by the way, he's in friggin' Mexico, like jigging yeah, for some in Pacific like feet bottom away. fish right now. So, you know, he's like, and I have a margarita on the beach tonight. Me and you were looking at a blizzard. So yeah, he can, he yeah. can suck it. FM. Right. So what I was saying is I, I think we'll be okay if we could protect those fish and get them out of the bay and allow them to recruit into the coastal stock and allow them to become part of that spawning stock biomass that, that we really judge the entire fishery on. Um, and, and that kind of is a good segue into uh, section 4.2.1, the measures protect to protect 2015, 2017 and 2018 year classes. And that was actually taken out of the document at this meeting. And I understand the reasons why, um, just from a practical standpoint, um, it's difficult to create new management measures and implement them uh, before we get that October assessment. Um, so we know, you know, what it is we're doing and we're, we're going to likely have to change them again after that assessment. And you kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the way these managers are talking and these are people that have relationships with the folks, the scientists that are actually doing the stock assessment, it does sound like news is not going to be good. And I'll be honest, you know, that's a little bit surprising to me just because anecdotally and, and even the preliminary MRIP numbers, effort is way down, um, you know, whether that's a result of COVID or it's a result of uh, um, availability uh, and, and whether it's the result of, of this, uh, you know, uh, slot limit we have put in place. There does seem to be uh, a lot less fishing and, and a lot more uh, releases because of that, um, because of that slot limit. And just talking about the Raritan Bay fishery alone, you know, those are all big fish. They're all pre and post spawning fish. And there's not many of them that are below 35 inches during, uh, particularly during the beginning of the year. And presumably, I, of course, there's some uh, level of, of noncompliance, but most of them are going back in. Uh, so I, I would say overall, it does, does seem to me like more fish uh, are around, uh, at least in the Hudson area. And, uh, and and less less of the big fish are being killed on their way up and down the coast, and there's a lot of those 2015s or presumably 2015s, those fish that are just below keeper size, um, and they're being protected also. So you would think that that would have some contribution. Um, you know, I, I'm I haven't seen the stock assessment. I haven't talked to anybody personally who has an intimate knowledge of it. Uh, but but it, you're absolutely right, man. The way these guys are talking and the fear in their voice leads me to believe that it's not going to look good. And uh, we're kind of being, kind of being prepared. Uh, I, I think Armstrong's motion uh, about you know well, having let's a hold tool on. Let's talk. Toolbox. Let's talk about that because that was that's to me that's one of the biggest things that happened. And you know, I, before you get into it, I just want to say like. It's it's one of these like Sophie's choice things for me. Like there's there's good in it, and then I'm a little I'm a little hesitant, but why don't let's let's tell the listeners and we can kind of get into our first take on it. So Mike Armstrong from Mass DMF, who I will tell you, you know, we have a pretty good relationship with. And uh and I personally like the guy. He's kind of no bullshit, says it like it is. Um you know, mass DMF is set up a little bit different than some of the other state agencies. These guys are in a union, their jobs are pretty safe. That allows them to do science and, and not worry about if the governor's going to get pissed at them and fire them like in other States, (laughs) Maryland. And, um, you know, uh, anyway, let's, let's talk about what Mike Armstrong did. Uh, yeah, I don't have the motion in front of me, but essentially, uh, he made a, a motion to include in the uh, in Amendment Seven a utility that would allow the board to make a reduction. I think he said up to twenty percent um, based on on TC analysis of the uh, of the stock assessment. 
And it would allow us to do that very quickly instead of having to initiate an addendum, which generally takes hey, at buddy, least. I just, I just found it. Let me read it off and then you yeah, keep going. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, this was the motion from uh, Commissioner Armstrong. Move to add an option to Section 4.4 Rebuilding Plan that considers an alternative process for responding to the 2022 stock assessment as follows. If the 2022 stock assessment results indicate the Amendment 7 measures have less than a 50% probability of rebuilding the stock by 2029, and if the stock assessment indicates at least a 5% reduction in removals is needed to achieve F rebuild, the board may adjust measures to achieve F rebuild via board action. Uh, motion by Dr. Armstrong, second by Jason McNamee. Passed by consent. Okay, continue. Yeah, so I, I, I guess I mistakenly added that 20% number, but it, it basically gives the board... Uh, a tool to react to that stock assessment quickly instead of waiting a year, sometimes actually two years when you look at the fishing season and the way the process works out to implement management measures. Um, and it's a good idea. It's a, it's a very good idea. And it's, it's surprising there was no pushback. Uh, I expected some. Um, it, it is a little bit concerning that there are no opportunities for the public to comment on on any uh, measures that we would take. But I think the public in the last two years, last three years, has been very clear that they want the board to react quickly, not, you know, uh, defer or wait until things are really bad, until they, they take management action. They want them to act quickly. And I can't imagine... Uh, that when this goes out, to, when the amendments, draft amendment seven goes out to the public, which it should uh, very soon here, that there'll be much, if any, pushback on that from the general public. Well, I hope, you know, uh, our our old buddy Charlie wrote a blog about this. And, it, you know, uh, recently on, on his blog, One Angler's Voyage, and it was kind of like, you know, we're going to see, we're going to see who who sticks to their guns because if this stock assessment comes out and it's as bad as some of us think it may be, we got to rebuild this stock by 2029. So you got to think like maybe some of Armstrong's thinking where it was, it may not even, if they, if they keep, you know, if they do an addendum instead of a board action, which this motion passed, there may not be enough time. The, the regulations may be totally draconian and the stock assessment may be so bad that it's not even friggin' possible to rebuild by 2029. And can you imagine the, the mounds that heaped upon them of hate if that's what comes out? Because I think that's a possibility. I really do. Uh, I think it's a possibility too. Um, so that that, <clears throat> that worries me greatly because you know it 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 would be one thing if we had a moratorium and there's certainly some folks along the coast that thinks that that think that that is necessary and and maybe the stock assessment will include it that it's necessary i hope it doesn't uh, but it's not out of the realm of possibility but what concerns me about all that is is the whole discard mortality conversation that we've been having and, you know, a moratorium could very well mean no targeting. And, you know, we could talk about enforcement all day and how it's not enforceable as long as there's bluefish in the water. I think it was Mike Armstrong that said that as long as there's bluefish in the water, people are going to be targeting bluefish and, and catching striped bass. Um, but where it's really going to hurt folks is is in the guide community. Um people who generally follow the rules, but also people who can't book trips uh, for catch and release striped bass fishing, which under normal circumstances, they certainly would be able to. Um, and and it's really going to cut into that business. And that business may, you know, uh, 100% shut down as a John, result. I, I'll tell you what, I have a lot of, I, I, I have the same concerns as you. I mean, Christ, we're the president and the vice president of the Guides Association. We have to be worried about that. But here's the deal. Like, you have to show me, right? You have to show me in black and white 
that because you're we're you will lose you will lose a certain segment of the community that doesn't want to catch and release striped bass they will fish for other things so you have to show me that that remaining community that's catch and release guys that banning them from doing this will bring the stock that will be the the linchpin to bring the stock back because i don't believe it i i i just i don't believe it for one second and they couldn't the reason why you know the no targeting zones you and i were talking during the meeting i thought the law enforcement lec was going to come on and talk about there's absolutely no way absolutely no way that we can um we can enforce no targeting no fucking way the law enforcement up and down the coast is saying that you have to take cues from them so you know it, i i hope that they just deal with reality instead of um you know look i mean you look you and i know this catch and release stuff has been a red herring especially for maryland you know they're using they're using mrip numbers with 60 percent standard error and to 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 make sure that harvest can continue at unsustainable levels um and you know if something makes sense like hey don't fish for these things in the summer fine you know okay um you know in very isolated areas like the upper portions of the chesapeake bay that might not be the worst thing in the world but you know i, I don't see the real conservation value of telling a surf caster that he or she can't catch a fish in 60 degree water and let it go lickety split that fish is going to live i mean give me a break you know give give me a give me a break or like areas like maine new hampshire where you live in the spring you, you don't face the same problems that that the upper portions of the bay face in july and august so like let's do something that isn't spiteful and hateful towards one user group and something that's actually going to help rebuild striped bass. Why would you take that business away? What are these guys? What are our friends going to do? What are they going to do? Hang drywall, pound nails? I mean, you can't take that away from somebody. That's going to be a fight. That's all I'm saying. So uh, you're not going to see an impact assessment of a no target closure because they can't show that. They can't quantify it uh, because of compliance and effort shifts, et cetera. They've been very clear from the beginning that it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to quantify uh, a no-target closure. So don't think for a minute, though, that that doesn't mean they won't do it. And that's pretty clear based on the conversations commissioners have been having on the record and off the record, uh, uh, saying things like, we have to address this. It's the biggest factor affecting rebuilding. And when clearly it's not, and and it's not really something we could effectively control either, because we just we just don't know what sort of impact it'll have, and it may have, likely will have, as you mentioned, minimal impact. But uh, you know, you're right; it's kind of become the red herring. And if we're going to shut down the catch and kill fishery, they're going to say, "Well, we got to shut this down too." Um, it's not a, out of the realm of possibility, and it's something we should definitely be concerned about and be ready to address when that time comes. Yeah, I mean, that's our job, right? I mean, that's that's our job. Um, so, okay, I mean, I, I'm I, getting back to Armstrong's motion. You know, you you touched on it that because it would be a board action, there would not be the same level of public comment that we're used to in an addendum or an amendment. That doesn't mean that we can't write letters in. That doesn't mean that we can't can't contact commissioners and still do outreach on a different level. They're just they don't have time to do like state hearings. And again, I kind of look at it. I've I've taken a couple of days to mull it over. I, my first reaction was like, Jesus Christ, I don't want to leave anything up to this board. You know, like I want to I want to exert our power on it. And I guess after a couple of days of chewing on it, we you know we can still have influence. We can we can still we can still have our say. It'll just be in a different it'll be in a different mechanism than than what we're used to. So, you know, we haven't sat down as a group yet and digested all this. But on the surface right now, you know, I applaud Mike Armstrong 
for having a little forethought and and trying trying to get you know this rebuilding addressed a year earlier than it otherwise would have been so you know i'm, a, I'm yeah, appreciative I, I of was, his effort i i am too and i was surprised to see that motion usually uh there's some discussion dis- discussion or uh you know behind the scenes lobbying or, or phone calls at least you get a heads up with something like that but that just kind of came out of nowhere i don't think anybody was prepared for it and uh you know there, you really couldn't argue against it given you know the scuttlebutt on this on the stock assessment and that what's likely going to be a need for immediate action well i'll tell you you know one of the other things that was interesting the, the following morning that was the menhaden hearing and holy shit I mean, if you if, if, whew, that that public information document and uh, that was so incredibly complex with ten different issues, that that looks like a fucking Dr. Seuss book compared to compared to what's going on with Menhaden. I mean, holy shit! Like it's everyone wants Menhaden. We got the ERPs passed. Everyone wants Menhaden now because of the situation with you know essentially lobster bait going up and down the coast and and how is how is a state like maine can i feel for maine you know I, I i really do but that that document was not approved for public comment so i kind of looked at that and was like huh you know so now they don't have the ability to horse trade right that document's still in motion and and there's no you know striped bass aren't on the chopping block for more menhaden which is always a concern of mine when dealing with the commission so it's almost i don't know it's almost like our little window of opportunity got a little wider with the lobster the management issues with lobster and the management issues with menhaden getting kicked down the road it's kind of going to enable us to laser in on stripers I think you're right. And just for, for clarity's sake, the Menhaden uh, action is an allocation one. Uh, you're basically taking a coastal stock and the intent is to redistribute it uh, to, to more closely follow a Menhaden abundance and to supply uh, the lobster bait industry uh, with fish that are actually right off of, say, Maine's coast. Um, instead of having to ship them from Virginia. Um, and so, you know, as a result, there there may or may not have been some opportunities for, for like you said, horse trading, Tony. And to, John, uh, let's, I mean, let's be honest. Trade strike bass for, for, yeah. for Menhaden. And, 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 you know, for our friends in Maine, I think collectively we view the use of Menhaden as lobster bait as a hell of a lot better use of the resource than liquefying them and turning them into pellet chicken feed for Chinese chicken farms. I 100% agree, but never underestimate the political power of a corporation. So we'll see what happens with this amendment. I can't imagine there isn't some redistribution, but I guarantee you Virginia will hold on to most of those fish. But anyway, we're getting Well, I mean, Virginia, look, Virginia has a new governor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whitman's son you know, district one congressman is a mm-hmm. captain on an Omega oh, I boat. Mm. I don't wow. really see. <laughs> yeah. We don't, we don't schedule a lot of meetings with that office. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think they, they have like pictures of us up at the the facility in Reedville as a dartboard. So now, yeah, we don't, we don't do that a lot. So, um, you know, I, I think, I think any the window has closed on any ho- any hopes of like meaningful adjustments to you know Menhaden regulations within the state waters of Virginia. That that shit ain't happening for the next four years. I can promise you that. So um, you know it is what it is, man. That's that's the stuff that we deal with every day. But I think I think we mitigated the impacts of potential horse trading with these documents not going out for public comment um you know john is there anything else that you wanted to add with um, uh with strike pass and any of your gut your gut yeah so so there's a couple of things instincts. that we haven't touched touched upon yet with the uh with the meeting uh that we probably should and and one is the rebuilding plan and that was added in 
at the October meeting having an, an option to initiate a rebuilding plan. Well, actually, it's a requirement. It's an, not an option, but there were two uh, two options underneath that that uh, section four point four, and one of them was to lo- to use a low recruitment scenario, and one of them was to use uh, a high recruitment scenario. And the difference were in the base years that they uh, that they use for their estimations of of rebuilding. And they include uh, Chesapeake Bay Young of the Year indices. And I don't have the years in front of me, but I I think it was, do you know offhand, Tony? It was, uh, I think, 1990. Hold on, I'll look it up real quick. Yeah, I don't, you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to my previous comment about me and you getting older and forgetting shit. So I, <laughs> I, I don't write, I don't off the top of my head, I can see you yeah, looking so, for it. So I got them right here. Um, F rebuild could be calculated by drawing recruitment from the values observed from 1990 to the terminal year of the stock assessment. Um, if recruitment is drawn, oh, that's okay. Yeah. So here it is. It's 1992 to 2006, which is the high recruitment period. And that's when the Chesapeake going to the indices were you know, well above average over that time period. And then you have the low recruitment period, which is 2007 to 2020. And uh, so depending on on which uh, recruitment regimen you pick for the rebuilding, that determines how conservative the rebuilding uh, measures are going to be. So uh, the low recruitment period assumes that less fish are going to going to be going to recruit into the coastal stock. Uh, So you're going to have to have more constraining measures where it'd be just the opposite if you use the high recruitment period. So those are two options that that we really just saw with the the new iteration of this document. Uh, And the science appears to be pointing towards the the low recruitment period and the more conservative uh, rebuilding timeline or the rebuilding um, uh, plan. And, uh, you know, we're talking about even more constraining measures there. And, and again, I, I, I have to bring up the concern about, about a no target closure here also, um, because that's looking more and more likely as we look at this. Um, do you want to comment on that, Tony, or you want to uh, wrap it up? There's one more. I think we need to talk about conservation equivalency. Too yeah, let's, before, talk about, uh, let's talk about yeah. CE, man. I think you covered that well, but let's, let's get into CE. Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, front-loaded um, options here that, that will prevent conservation equivalency from being uh, taken advantage of or, or used to, to get more fish for your state, which, you know, under the, the current uh, paradigm, it's pretty clear that some states have used it to kind of bypass what their reduction what their statewide reduction should be and and to take a lower reduction and, and get more fish for their state and we saw that pretty recently with addendum four where new jersey uh, kind of violated the intent of the program and and ended up uh, having to take an 18 percent cut instead of what should have been a 42 percent cut if they had just gone with the the coastal regulations which was the slot limit between 28 and 35 inches um, so, so there were two sub options from the get go, and this is option E. Uh, the first uh, sub option is status quo, which would really allow states like New Jersey to do what they did instead of once they pick conservation equivalency, instead of complying with the percent reduction that their state would have to take under the coastal regulations. Uh, they just said, well, we just have to take 18%. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to craft regulations that meet that requirement, not the 42%. And they did that. And the end result was that we had a management plan uh, or or we had an addendum that had only a 42% uh, chance of achieving uh, the goals set forth in that addendum, which was the 18% coastal reduction. Um, So sub-option E1 would would allow that to still happen, which, uh, you know, arguably that shouldn't be happening in the first place under the commission's charter. Uh, but there's really nothing in that charter. Well, that's not true. The charter is pretty clear that they must be equivalent regulations. And I don't know how this was able to happen. And frankly, I think it happened because it was at the end of the meeting at like 7 p.m. And we were all just really tired. and We didn't know uh, what the motion meant, what what New Jersey's motion meant. But but it slipped by. Um, and, and option two really prevents that. Um, and it it. 
it specifies that the state has to take the reduction that they would take under the conservationally equivalent regulations. And I think uh, as far as public hearings are concerned, we really have to come out strongly for suboption E2. Um, and I, that, you know, I wanted, if it hadn't been so late in the meeting, I wanted to bring that up and to see if we could get E1 taken out altogether. Because like I said, I don't believe uh, it complies with, with the commission's charter or, or with their conservation equivalency program, period. But uh, you know, it was at the end of the meeting and, and we had gone over our time already and everyone was tired and I didn't think we had much of a chance of getting it taken out anyway, because it's only one of two options, but the public uh, comment process will be critical there, I think. Yeah. And the other, you know, the other facets of conservation equivalency, the other options, there's, you know, like that luxury tax. Like if you, mm -hmm. if you choose to do conservation equivalency, you have to take an extra 10 or 15% reduction on top of the other reduction. And then the one that I really like is you, you can't use it. If the stock is overfished, if the stock yeah. is not at target, if, you know, if overfishing is occur, you know, there were, there were a couple of different options in there. And, you know, when you look at the scope of all the options with conservation equivalency, it's going to be hard to come out losing on that one. And, and I, I think, I think our position has been pretty solid since the get-go and that's simply like we don't mind the concept but quit abusing it and if and if you abuse it you should have to be accountable when we talk to the managers the data is not robust enough to hold them accountable on the back end so the only option is hold them accountable on the front end I mean right. I, New Jersey was the only state that didn't even come close to meeting the 18% reduction. I mean, correct? Yeah, yeah. That's... I mean, I think they got a 0% reduction, New Jersey. So thanks. Uh -huh. Thanks once again, Jersey, you know, uh -huh. for, um, for you know, all that fun stuff. Um, yeah, I, another critical part of this, Tony, is the uh, percent standard error requirements. I think it's sub-option oh, C1, huge. 2, and 3. Huge. Yeah, because... Because the level of precision in MRIP becomes smaller and smaller, the the smaller uh, area you use it in. I mean, you look at it on a coastwide basis over a number of years, it's it's not terrible. It's actually fairly precise and reflects real trends that everybody sees in the water. But when you use it uh, on a year-to-year, state-to-state basis, like New Jersey would use it just for their state, it's very imprecise. And you're looking at uh, 40, 50% PSEs. And, and this would require. Oh, it was John, it was when, when, when Maryland closed April down to catch and release fishing, those mm -hmm. PSEs were getting close to 60%. I think, I think yeah, they said crazy. that, you know, they said that, you know, tens of thousands of fish were being caught every day in April, you know, my mm -hmm. ass, you know, I, I go, you know, I, I'm not an MRIP denier. I'm not a data complainer. But mm -hmm. all you need to know is that it has a 60% PSE and the fact yeah. that they were over a two week period, one month, one wave, all of us know MRIP isn't accurate. Yeah. We shouldn't be so, allowing so them even, to use even, it. Yeah. Even the most conservative option under, under this suite of options is 30%. Uh, and, you know, even that is borderline. Uh, and, and I think NEMPS recently released guidance, National Marine Fisheries Service recent released guidance saying that if it's uh, if the PSE is 30 percent or above, uh, I don't think they said you can't use it, but that it should be viewed with caution. And, and the recommendation was not to use it. Um, so this really if, if your percent standard error is is, uh, you know, 30% or less, okay, then you could use conservation equivalency. But if it's above that, then you can't. Um, and and furthermore, I think option D is uncertainty buffers. Uh, whereas if you do, because there's, there's a lot more uncertainty with conservation equivalent regulations as opposed uh, to coastal regulations, because it's in a very uh, a geographically smaller area. So you don't really know um, whether or not they're going to work because MRIP uh, is such is so imprecise at that level. Um, so you have sub options for 10, 25 or 50 percent conservation buffer with whatever regulations you uh, you implement. And this this does two things. One, it, it kind of uh, 
motivates the state not to uh, to do conservation equivalency regulations. And if they do want to do them, then they need better data. They need a, a larger sample in their surveys, and they would have to do that on their own. Uh, yeah. So it motivates them to do that also. I, I think these are all very reasonable uh, uh, guide rails uh, along uh, around the conservation equivalency program. And and frankly, we should have done this, you know, a long time back in Amendment 6 uh, when we had the, uh, you know, conservation equivalency standards written in uh, to, well, you know, to strike John, past management. And another, another big point is that we bang the drum on – the, the kind of freewheeling that was going on with conservation equivalency. We got, we, we educated the public on it. We were absolutely the first group, the only group to be, to be beating that drum. And, you know, man, again, if people don't think their voice makes a difference, look at, look at the options under conservation equivalency, like we were heard. So mm -hmm. man, we're almost coming up on an hour. I, I want to remind everyone that if they have any questions, you know, Costa Del Mar, our, our sponsor, our awesome sponsor for this podcast is, uh, is supporting us, um, uh, through a, through a comment, uh, deal where you could win a free pair of Costas if we read your comment on, on this podcast. So, um, you know, if you have any questions, comments on this, send it to comments at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. And, uh, and if we read your comment online, we will contact you and you will win an awesome prize. I want to thank, uh, my co-founder, good friend, and, uh, you know, dude who we always have each other's backs, uh, in this, in all this bullshit that we call our day-to-day -day lives, Captain John McMurray from, uh, from One More Cast up in New York. Thank him for taking a little bit of his time to, to join us share his knowledge, his experience as a commissioner. Um, we look forward to these hearings coming up. Everyone pay attention. We'll get the information out um, as soon as we kind of figure this stuff out as a group. Um, thank you, John. Uh, your, your time is incredibly valuable, and we appreciate you spending it here and sharing your wealth of knowledge. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, it. folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>